This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice and I'm with our Philadelphia Trumpet writers Jeremiah Jacques, Mihailo Zekic, Richard Palmer, and Andrew Miller. Today is January 12th, 2024, and we have shots fired in the Middle East, and they continue to be fired. We'll cover that shortly. But first, we're going to move to the Asia region. Jeremiah Jacques, you watch Asia from week to week. What is the news from Asia this week? Yeah, first of all, a quick one about Taiwan. A new analysis reported by Bloomberg this week says that if a war breaks out over Taiwan, it could deliver a $10 trillion shock to the global economy. So you may think that the blow from COVID was a big jolt to the global economy or Russia's war on Ukraine or the global financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. But this would be considerably larger than any of those if it happens the way analysts expect. So Very sobering to consider that. Next up, there's been a deep freeze in Russia. It's been more than two weeks now of abnormally cold, you know, sub-zero temperatures across much of Russia. And this comes at a time of heating outages across huge swaths of the country, including Moscow Oblast, where millions of people live. There's no heating and no water for tens of thousands of these people because of a broken boiler. And this is at a time when the Moscow region is getting hit by well below zero Fahrenheit temperatures. And the bizarre thing about this cold front is that it seems to end almost exactly where Russia's border with European nations begins or ends there. So students of history will have heard of General Frost. That's a term that Russians often give to the harsh winter to kind of personify it as a force that fights with Russia against their enemies. General Frost was a big part of why Napoleon's forces and Hitler's forces failed to conquer Russia. But this time it looks like the esteemed general has maybe gone turncoat. He now seems to be fighting against Russia. On uh, social media, they're debating whether this means that NATO has learned how to weaponize the weather or whether it might mean that God is angry at Russia. Those are not really serious debates that people are having. But when you see how punishing this weather is, and how the abnormally cold system ends very starkly right at Russia's border, it really does kind of make you wonder. But in any case, it is uh, just a very bleak situation for a huge number of people. It's easy to think that in the modern world, we've overcome everything. We can fly over mountains, we can you know cross seas and so forth. But the fundamental climate and weather can have a major, major effect. That's actually mentioned several times throughout the Bible, <laughs> that there is a uh, a God reminding human beings that they are just human beings. And people talking about a bomb cyclone here in the United States is nothing compared to what Russia experiences. You've got a, a major story coming out of China this week. That's right. Yes. Uh, China is building replicas of American warships for target practice. So this is basically to help the Chinese prepare to destroy these vessels in a future conflict with the U.S. Navy. This is happening out in the middle of one of China's deserts, the Taklamakan Desert. We only know about it because of satellite imagery. But what the Chinese have built is essentially a full-scale mock-up of the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier. That's America's newest nuclear aircraft carrier. It cost about $13 billion. It's actually the largest warship ever built in all of human history and the most expensive and powerful warship in history. So you can see why the Chinese are worried about going up against the Gerald R. Ford in a naval battle. And uh, the news this week shows that they are actively planning to destroy this American warship, as well as some smaller American vessels that they've also made mock-ups of. Analysts believe that the purpose of the mock-up ships is just to let China test and refine some of their seeker missiles the kind of missiles that have image recognition. So they just want to be able to improve these missiles' ability to target specific ships and even specific areas on those ships that would do the most damage. It's basically high-tech target practice. This carrier-resembling structure, akin to others in the vicinity, is presumably intended for target practice, 
serving as a platform for China to assess the effectiveness of its advancing missile capabilities. This observation underscores China's efforts to develop a robust military force capable of deterring American naval presence. That was Scott Leffler there with the Defense Updates channel. And really, we should see this as only the latest piece of evidence showing that China is fiercely determined to take over the South China Sea. This is a tremendously important maritime region, the South China Sea. Something like one-third of the world's maritime commerce flows through here. And China has been building islands in the sea for the last decade now and turning those into military bases. China has also been intimidating other nations like the Philippines and Vietnam, just provoking them to no end to try to assert dominance over the sea. But the Chinese know that to really take over this region, they may have to face off with the U.S. Navy. And so that's really at the heart of why this replica of America's finest warship was built and is now being used for target practice. The Chinese are very serious about conquering this region. And I think 2024 could be a big year for them to ramp up their efforts toward that end. You mentioned the purpose, obviously, is to help the Chinese prepare to destroy these vessels. I don't know the answer to this question. Do you think it's also to send a message? You mentioned uh, China provoking its Asian neighbors, and uh, it's out there in the desert. Do you think that they knew that this would get out and that this is just a direct threat to the United States to stay out? I think it's very possible that this feeds into China's, you know, propaganda strategies. They knew full well that satellite imagery would capture this. They they built it to be perfectly identifiable as the Gerald R. Ford. And it does kind of send a message like, look, we know about this warship, their main aircraft carrier. But guess what? We're making plans against it. And it could very well uh, be something that resonates with Vietnam and some of these other nations that so far are sort of trying to walk the tightrope between China and the U.S. But these kinds of things, seeing China actively prepare to destroy these American warships, it could have a bearing on the calculus in some of these Asian nations. If that is symbolic, I cannot think of a larger symbol (laughs) in human history that's ever been created to send a, a pretty strong message. So where did your mind go when you saw this news and you got these details? Yeah, well, I thought of an article that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote back in our July 2016 issue. He said in there that China's determination to conquer the South China Sea is, quote, steering the world toward war. A little more of his article here says, Since World War II, America has protected this vital trade route and brought peace to this part of the world. Now... The American military is retreating. Everything is headed in the direction of war. And then from there, Mr. Fleury explains that his analysis of the whole South China Sea dynamic is founded on Bible prophecy. He mentions Deuteronomy 28.52, where God warns the nations of Israel, mostly meaning the modern U.S. and U.K., that if they reject his authority, then he'll give control over the world's strategic sea lanes and sea gates to their enemies. And then Mr. Fleury says that China's rapidly expanding military power shows just how quickly this prophecy could be fulfilled in the South China Sea. That's China is steering the world toward war. This is not just a managed decline of the United States Navy and the United States. And this is not just a managed handoff of of power to China to be able to have a sphere of influence right near its own coast. This is something much more than that. And uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry recognized that when he wrote that article. China is steering the world toward war. From China and Asia, we move now to the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, what news from the Middle East? So last night, there was a massive strike by the United States and the United Kingdom against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. This is the first significant pushback we've seen from their attacks on trade in the Red Sea. We'll have more to talk about that in the panel discussion. Also on Wednesday, a United Nations helicopter crash-landed in Somalia in territory that happened to be controlled by the terror group Al-Shabaab. The terrorists killed one person as they were trying to flee and kidnapped six others. That's obviously a a region that borders the Red Sea as well, very volatile on both sides of the sea there, as we talked about last week. And also the Iraqi foreign minister, Fouad Hussein, told Saudi uh, media that 
the Iraqi government is planning on getting a start date for talks with the United States for a full U.S. withdrawal from Iraq. There's been a lot of skirmishes there between the United States and Iran-backed Shiite forces. And Iran has a lot more leverage over Iraq than the United States does. It's a pretty precarious situation for keeping the country together. So it looks like the Iraqi government is siding with Iran in this case. And that means getting the handful of troops the states has left in Iraq out. Nothing has been concretely decided as of yet. Uh, There's no imminent withdrawal happening that we can pinpoint exactly when it's going to happen, but certainly an important trend to keep our eyes on. What is the most important development of the trends we are already keeping our eyes on here in the Middle East? So yesterday coming into today was the start of an important trial in The Hague in the Netherlands. That's the seat of the International Court of Justice, the United Nations judicial arm. And South Africa decided to bring Israel in there in the context of the Hamas war on charges of genocide that what Israel is doing in Gaza right now is breaking the 1948 Convention on Genocide, which was formed right after the Holocaust, which, of course, six million Jews died. The whole One of the reasons the state of Israel exists was to not let that thing ha- happen again. And now the United Nations and South Africa are using these measures put in place in response to the massacres of the Jews to protect the Jews against the Jews themselves is what they're doing in Gaza. And obviously war is an unpleasant reality in this world. It's not like uh, it's a good thing that people are dying one way or the other. But October 7th, with the massacre that happened there, Israel has a right to defend itself as any other sovereign state does. And a lot of actors, including in this case South Africa, are framing the scenario there on the ground. No matter if Israel fires so much as one bullet, that counts as the most horrible crime humanity could possibly commit. Genocide is obviously a very serious charge. What exactly are is the evidence that South Africa is supplying for this. It is systematic in its character and form. The mass displacement of the population of Gaza headed into areas where they continue to be killed and the deliberate creation of conditions that, quote, lead to a slow death, unquote. There is also the clear pattern of conduct the targeting of family homes and civilian infrastructure, laying waste to vast areas of Gaza, and the bombing, shelling, and sniping of men, women, and children where they stand, the destruction of the health infrastructure, and lack of access to humanitarian assistance. That was South African lawyer Tembeka Nkuki Tobi speaking there for the prosecution. Have you heard that? That's not genocide, what he was describing there. That's war. Populations being displaced because of bombs going off, people getting in the supply lines, getting disrupted. That's war. That is not genocide in any sense of the term, unless if it was deliberately used to specifically eradicate a racial or religious group. You go back way earlier to some of the actions that Russia was doing in Ukraine and them kidnapping thousands of Ukrainian children to brainwash them and make them think they're Russians, put them into Russian family, people were saying that that might qualify as genocide. That's a lot more closer to the traditional definition of genocide than what Israel is doing. Russia hasn't even been convicted of genocide yet. And the the Israeli war, it's only a few months old so far. They're doing demonstrably everything they can to make it easier for civilians as much as possible to flee a war zone, to get supplies over there, to have specifically targeted killings. You met, you heard in the clip there, you mentioned that Israel's targeting civilian infrastructure. Oh, yeah, you mean those hospitals that are used as Hamas command centers? You mean those schools where they're stashing weapons, where they're hoping Israel will hit so the international press can make them look like a big bad tyrant? I mean, come on, what, is Netanyahu going to shuffle some papers next and they're going to say that he's guilty of, of insurrection then too? Uh, we talk a lot about miscarriage of the justice and people using the flimsiest of excuses to go after political opponents like Donald Trump, like what we're hearing about in Poland lately. In this case, it's not even Benjamin Netanyahu. It's all of Israel. It's the whole nation is guilty of the worst possible crime, according to these prosecutors. And the worst part is 
with when a lot of these things happen, usually it takes years for the decisions to come out. South Africa put an injunction to basically get the UN court to put a legal ruling that Israel has to stop the war. And the, the court is expected to make a decision with this within a few weeks. And then this, it's up to the Security Council to act on this. With everything else, no matter what the crime is, like we're still having tribunals from what happened in Yugoslavia or the Darfur or all these other places. In this case, because it's Israel, all it takes is a couple of weeks. That's the preliminary injection on the war. Like the actual charges of genocide themselves might take years. But if anything, it's the most blatant double standard against Israel and against the Jewish people in their one of their most dire hours of need in recent history I've ever seen. Yeah, this is wild. If you're South Africa, how do you not fear that no one will take you seriously? If you are accusing a power, if you can just, just not even say which power did which, but one of them raped, murdered, tortured, kidnapped civilians and the other one comes in and sends text messages before it attacks creates paths for people to evacuate to targets only the leaders of the first organization if you were if you can just take the names out and you put those two things side by side the way the first used force and violence the way the second is using force and violence there is no way that anybody would say that the second is the one that's guilty of genocide. But when you say the Jews are doing it, then that changes the whole equation. And that's wild. It's not logical. It does not make sense. And people just get used to it. I think, I mean, even though the fact that there's this term anti-Semitism, it's like special hatred for Jews. That's that's the term. It's not anti-Semitism. It's a special hatred for Jews. And we're used to that. It's it's a feature of history, but nobody stops and thinks, well, where did this come from and why is that? It gets better. The South Africans admit this in their in their presentation. Their team actually stated that since Hamas isn't a country, it is not bound by the Genocide uh, Convention, which specifically talks about actions because of states. They're admitting their double standard to the whole world. And frankly, nobody cares. This should be a bigger deal in most media around the world to get any sense of decency and the right, rights of humanity and with any sense of history and what the Jews have been through, even just since the state of Israel has been created. South Africa, for their part, they've had long ties with the Palestinian Liberation Organization and Yasser Arafat, or I should say the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's old party. In this case, I think, if anything, they're just trying to stick up for an old friend. Well, no, I think it's worse than that. And I think this is, I mean, we had a really eye-opening article on the website this week from uh, Rufaro Manyepa, who was writing from Zimbabwe on this South African decision. And, you know, like I recently wrote an article on anti-Semitism for the Trumpet Print. I've done a lot of research on this. I was shocked by what he has in like I didn't I had no idea that South Africa had the world's 12th largest Jewish population for example and you know those Jews are actively being attacked by South Africans and it, you know, it's being tolerated and you, know, you have crowds outside the Holocaust Museum in Cape Town shouting one Zionist one bullet and there's it, like the South African government has let Hamas basically open a headquarters it seems like in South Africa so, you know, South Africa is actively aiding and abetting genocide against the Jews while pointing the finger at the Jews. So I just that that, that article really opened my eyes to an angle of this that I hadn't hadn't really considered before then. When the story first came out of all of this, the first place that came into my mind is a scripture in Revelation chapter 12, specifically verse 10, which speaks of Satan being the accuser of the brethren which accuses them before our god day and night the context of this is satan being cast down to this earth and confined to this earth and inflicting more terror than ever before that's a an event you could prove from recent history uh, the context of, of that verse is a little bit different but the same principle applies to people that god are, is working with the people that have a history of god satan attacks them day and night the word for devil we get in the new testament it literally comes from a greek word meaning the slanderer that's exactly what we're seeing with the state of Israel now, whether it's from South Africa or the UN or whoever, and for its existence as a country and well before that with the Jewish people. There is something, as you mentioned, it, like anti-Semitism just as a general ism doesn't even begin to describe the irrational hatred we see with the Jews. 
And in this case, this uh, court ruling may actually end up having some legal problems for Israel in its prosecution of the war. People are that desperate to keep Hamas intact, to keep those genocidal murderers intact and to have Israel back down, whether it's South Africa or anybody else. That article Mr. Palmer was mentioning, it's from uh, our print issue two issues ago, The Truth and Lies About Anti-Semitism, The Truth and Lies About Anti-Semitism. If you'd like to see the one he referenced that uh, Mr. Manyepa spoke of, that's on the front page of our website, Why Does South Africa Hate Israel? That's Why Does South Africa Hate Israel? Truth and Lies About Anti-Semitism and Why Does South Africa Hate Israel? And I happen to know that Mr. Palmer is working on a an anti-Semitism trend article that you'll be able to read at thetrumpet.com slash trends. Why is there a special hatred for Jews? Why is that? And if there is a special hatred against Jews, and if that hatred exists across the globe, South Africa is far away. It has different cultures in it, has different religions in it, has different types of populations in it. And that hatred exists in, in Sydney, Australia, and in Dearborn, Michigan, and all throughout Europe, all these different places. And if it has existed throughout history, a special hatred for these particular people, what is it about these particular people? There are answers to that question. You alluded to the core answer right there, but you can get a lot more detail at those articles that we mentioned and we'll include in the show notes. Our next region is covered by Mr. Palmer, whom you heard there, the Europe region. Mr. Palmer, what are the updates from Europe this week? The main thing I'd like to update you on is the story from Poland that we've been watching. We saw another quite dramatic twist there where there's a a bit of a a fight over two MPs. The two MPs in question back around 2007 were in charge of the anti-corruption bureau they were charged with basically entrapment, you know, trying to set up political enemies. They claimed they were going after corruption in high places and that the court system was used against them. Their enemies say, no, you were using the corruption bureau to to target political opponents. You kind of, I guess, the, the kind of garden variety disagreement that we're that we're used to. Then you have this situation. I don't really understand it. Poland has two Supreme Courts. That seems really dumb to me. Uh, I guess it must make sense to post. So the Consti- so the president stepped in and pardoned these two people. He has that power. Poland's Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. That's interfering with the powers of the judiciary. You've got to wait until all the appeals have kind of run their course. Then you can pardon them. You can't kind of pardon them partway through the process. The constitutional tribunal, this kind of other Supreme Court, stepped in and said, no, that's fine for a court to stop that actually gets in the way of the constitutional separation of powers and is obstructing the president's ability to pardon. And that stands. So you have these two different courts giving different rulings. Then you had the opponents of the Law and Justice Party, the opponents of these two particular MPs come into power in December. They then found a judge to rule that these MPs must be arrested, must go to prison. The president, though, is still the same president of the Law and Justice Party, the same party that pardoned them. So he was sheltering them in his house. The result is you had the police storming the house of the president of Poland. So quite a striking image. I think if it were just this happening on its own, I'd kind of just be like, look, it's your own inter- it's your own dumb fault for having two Supreme Courts. What did you expect to happen? This is kind of inevitable. But you look at this in the wider context of everything that we've talked about in Poland, where you had an election in which Germany basically interfered. You had the government forcibly shutting down state news agencies. You had police going in and firing people. You had all of this, that the kind of thing that happens when you have a coup. Uh, and so then to turn the police against the president shows another worrying level of authoritarianism of a new government coming in and being willing to use very authoritarian tactics to get its way in its political fights. I mean, this is another step in Europe and having the strongman type policies and the erosion of democracy in Europe that we have been that we've been watching for. And the Polish people are upset. This is not just kind of arguments among lawmakers and judges. This tens of thousands of people. Yeah, tens of thousands are in the streets. As you mentioned there, people are 
upset about it. And the way it's being covered, I noticed, you know, obviously on this program, we're always looking for the pro-EU slash pro-Germany element of this development. We've covered that before. You've covered it well. But that's recognized by the press in general that this is a mass protest against a new pro-EU government. Like that is what the uh, the fault lines, the, the battle lines are. That's where those are being drawn. And people are upset. This is a major thing happening in Poland right now. And we'll, we'll look to you to continue covering that for us. This is turning, Poland is turning out to be such a, uh, an important country in, in so many different ways. And your article, Poland Under Attack, it's yeah. on, the, on the website today in the, in the hero spot at the moment. There you go. All right. But, but as, as important as that is, as many people are angry enough to fill the streets of Poland are doing so, uh, your main story is from Germany and involves the Middle East. That's right. I want to remind you of our front cover article from Mr. Gerald Flurry from the previous But One Trumpet print edition, As You Watch Gaza, Watch Germany. His equip for that was the overlooked effect of the Hamas-Israel war that will eclipse all others in importance. You know, this is a real guiding point of what is going on in the Middle East. And in that article, well, he said the most shocking problem in the Middle East is not what is happening in Gaza, but what is happening with Germany. And he said, well, one of the most important consequences of that October 7th attack is going to be how it changes Germany's relationship with the Middle East. And we got a very major step towards that today or this week with what's going on there. So we used to talk quite a bit about Germany selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And this was a key way that Germany was building alliances and moving into the Middle East. It was called the Merkel Doctrine, where they would... Sign, uh, sell weapons to various different countries across the Middle East. In 2018, you had the Saudis come out and murder uh, Jamal Khashoggi, this journalist. And it was a pretty naked aggression. And at that point, Germany said no more. No more heavy weaponry to Saudi Arabia. They did a lot to curtail that relationship. This week, they made very clear this relationship is back on. It began on Monday, where you've had this situation where the Saudis bought about 70 Eurofighter Typhoons, and Germany, these are made by EADS, and Germany's a major stakeholder in there. Germany has to sign off on their weapons exports. So they approved this earlier sale, and then Saudi Arabia wanted another 40 or so more. And because of this, this journalist's death, Germany had said no. And this request for more aircraft had stalled for about five years. And Germany's foreign minister reversed course on that and said, OK, we're going to we're going to sell weapons and to confirm that this is not a one off, but then is a general change in policy and a general change in the way that Germany is treating Saudi Arabia. You had a second arms sale that was announced this week where Germany is also going to be selling Iris T missiles to Saudi Arabia. So this is a complete change. That ban on heavy weapons to Saudi Arabia is lifted. And I think what is interesting is you look at what, what the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, said. You know, she specifically tied it to October 7th. That she said the world, especially here in the Middle East, has become a completely different place since October 7th. And she, a government spokesman, it wasn't her actually, but it was a, a government spokesman, praised Saudi Arabia's, quote, very constructive attitude towards Israel. And so it's it's all specifically tied to October 7th, the way Saudi Arabia has, has reacted since October 7th. Germany has made that complete change. And so it's a we're just a couple of months out from that cover article from Mr. Joe Flurry. And you're already seeing how that was ahead of the game. And we're seeing that article playing out in our news this week. I'd also venture to say it has a lot to do with Mr. Fleury's cover article of the issue that just came out a few weeks ago with the Red Sea and everything that's going on yep. with the Houthis. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the Houthis' number one enemy. Just a few months ago, the Houthis were fighting in Saudi Arabia itself. The whole the big hoo-ha and why nobody wanted to give the Saudis weapons in the first place is because what they're doing in Yemen. And it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden Ye Iran – lets their Houthi proxies do this damage, and now Germany starts sending weapons to the main enemy of that proxy. Right, and this is not just happening behind the scenes. Weapons exports, we've mentioned before, are a major tool of German foreign policy, you know, more so than its, its military in, in some ways, you could look at it. 
but so much so that many Germans, and would you say the average German consider it to be a major issue? This is something they talk about. I remember when they, they were sending tanks or they were going to send tanks to the Saudis when they were in conflict, I think it was with Yemen. I don't know if there were protests, but it was all over the news. My point is that they know how important these weapons exports are, and they know how important this is, that this is a tool of German foreign policy, and they have fights over this because they recognize that this is how Germany is extending its power in the world. That's right. And and as you highlight, it's a big change because typically Germany only sells offensive weaponry to within NATO. And yeah, this is a major part of the German political discussion. And what I think is interesting is you look at who is generally critical of this and who has generally been the people leading the, pro- the, the politicians leading the protests, the people showing up at these protests. It's Germany's Social Democratic Party and it's the Green Party. Who's in government right now? It's the Social Democratic and the Green Party. Like it's the parties that are usually against arms sales wow. that are approving it. So I wanted to focus on this today because it is just such a direct fulfillment of what Mr. Flurry wrote in that article, as you watch Gaza, watch Germany, I think you, you may well, if you've seen the trumpet print edition, you'll remember the striking cover issue that, or the striking cover image there of an eagle holding the Israeli flag on a on a yellow background. But that article does really dig more deeply into this is such a central Bible prophecy. Like This is so critical. Germany getting more involved in the Middle East, Germany being an ally with Israel, but then that being deceptive. There are a lot of very specific prophecies, and these prophecies are central to everything that we hope for in the future. They're central to the solution to all of the problems that you see in the world around you. And so there's also a certain level of excitement. Like We're seeing those prophecies fulfilled. We're seeing all of the steps, some of these early steps that are part of the solution to all of the world's problems, you know, that, that culminate. These are part of the, the steps that culminate in the return of Jesus Christ that are very directly related to that, and we're seeing them be fulfilled. So I think that's an important article and just a really exciting article to dig into as well. And that's that cover article as you watch Gaza, watch Germany. So from our Europe region, we move to our next region, which is Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, I was just talking with you about how this term is a curious one. When I started working for the trumpet, I knew what it meant, but it just sounded, I don't know, unfamiliar to most people. So before you give us an update on Anglo-America, just what do you mean when you say Anglo-America? Yeah, that's actually a good question, which I've gotten before, and hopefully I'm clear with it is that we we use the term Anglo-America on Trumpet Hour because um, we're basing our prophetic news analysis on the book The United States and Britain and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong, which is about the United States and the British Commonwealth. And so using Anglo-hyphenated America is at least our attempt to include America and England and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and all the English-speaking world. It's not, as uh, (laughs) some wokesters may have claimed in the past, an attempt to only talk to Americans of English descent. So it's actually a term that covers more than all of America, not a subset of America. Yeah, it's not a subset of America at all. It's actually all Americans plus everyone in Great Britain and the the British Commonwealth. Although, even though it does uh, (laughs) seem these days, just given the political state of the world, that our Anglo-American news is pretty America-centric. True, it it is. But it, it is interesting, the relationships between... Britain and America, we've just seen them strike Houthi targets in Yemen. British and Americans, you know, were side by side in Iraq and, and other places in the Middle East and in other wars, back to the world wars. So if it, if it seems like America and Britain, and then for some strange reason, Israel are kind of like brother nations, there's a reason for that. <laughs> and that's in United States and Britain and prophecy. What are the headlines that caught your eye this week? Of course, we've still got people delving into the court documents on the Epstein files, which is a a big unfolding story that we talked about last week. Uh, Also, the financial situation in uh, Anglo-America is horrible, with a new report saying that actually 30% of Americans from big cities are behind on their debt payments, like overdraw off or, or late on their considerable debt. Harvard University, which was founded as a 
minister's college in colonial times is now being very justly sued for allowing just rank anti-Semitism on their campus. And maybe a good bit of good news, the Biden administration wanted to take down a statue of William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He decided taking down the Confederate statues wasn't as enough and is now going for founding fathers and even colonial patriarchs and actually had his plans scuttled when the uh, local Native American tribes from Pennsylvania protested saying that William Penn had always been a good friend to their people and they were offended by the removal of his statue. That's remarkable. That kind of infighting that we see surrounding William Penn, surrounding other founding fathers and other historical figures, as well as what was happening in Harvard, both of those are kind of parts of what your main story is. And and that's just what's happening inside of America. There's, uh, There's something serious going on this year. Yeah, one of the Biggest stories focusing on at the beginning of the year, because this is an election year in America, and we're ramping up into the primary season, and uh, we're going to be talking much more about presidential primaries in the months going forward. But there's a CBS News report talking about how political violence in America may well be the top global trend for this year. And so that's obviously it's not a a news story that's become the top global trend yet, but we definitely see uh, quite a bit of warning signs on the horizon with political violence uh, across America increasing. Like I said, they consider this the top global trend. They did a new poll out where, like I said, like one in four Americans polled from both sides of the political spectrum said that violence may be justified to save the country. And they've had several analysts get on here. Uh, One uh, pointed back to um, some old comments where uh, the Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters was telling Republican, telling Democrats to get in the face of Republicans. And this one analyst has said that that's actually a prelude to shooting at them. And then a somewhat liberal analyst, Benjamin Ginsburg, said that it's not all about Trump. There are forces on the left that are just as intemperate as Trump. Trump bears some of the blame, but there are plenty of Democratic politicians and operatives who are intemperate and prone to violence. And so that that's from an analysis who's pretty anti-Trump and is, I think, attributing a lot of things to Trump that he never actually said. But it is interesting is that it's like even one of the few liberals who are admitting that it's like, no, it's not just about QAnon conspiracy theorists or something like that. It's like so the, most of the violence right these days is coming from the left. There is definitely um, some on the uh, the conservative side of the spectrum that are getting fed up with it and at least talking like political violence may be necessary to save the country. But we're really – you can see the um, – the early tremors of civil war. I mean, there's definitely in a political civil war where the gridlock in Congress is worse than it's been since the actual civil war. But you look at those and it's like said, the uh, the comment about like a prelude to shooting, that's a serious and sobering thing to say, but uh, could be right. I mean, when you look at the extents they did to rig the last election and now even taking efforts in states across the country to bar Trump from running from office again. If he does run for office again and does well, you could see how some of those one in four Americans who think political violence is necessary to save the country, how things could get very ugly very quickly. You know, that reminds me of uh, a video that Trumpet managing editor Joel Hilliker posted on uh, social media. You can also see these at thetrumpet.com. Go to the in brief section. We've got some more videos there for you, short videos that we've been trying to produce each day. Uh, But one of them was by Mr. Hilker, and it was on this report by the Eurasia Group. It's top risks predictions for 2024, and risk number one was the United States versus itself. Yeah, well, that's uh, that is some good analysis about the the biggest risk being the United States versus 
itself. Abraham Lincoln famously said that, like, if all the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa together, combined together with all the treasures of the world and were led by Napoleon Bonaparte himself, couldn't even take a drink from the Ohio River. Uh, and so he said, so if America is going to fall, it's going to have to either live forever as a nation of free men or die by suicide. That's not an exact quote I didn't bring with me, but fairly roughly w what Lincoln said. And prophetically relevant as well, there's um, numerous prophecies in Ezekiel 5. I brought one with me today in Isaiah 3, verses 5 through 8, that says, And the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and every man by his neighbor. For Jerusalem, its symbol for end-time Israel, is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongues and their doings are against the Lord. So if you read that whole chapter, it really does describe some civil war-like conditions with every man against every other man in, in just a very chaotic situation like you're, you're starting to see develop in America now. And when you hear rhetoric like that, it's very worrying and it's, it is a prelude to actual violence when one side or both sides just cannot, will not take it anymore. You wrote an article on this called How Close Is the U.S. to Civil War? That's on thetrumpet.com. And in the show notes, how close is the U.S. to civil war? We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the weekend review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Thank you for staying with us for our roundtable. As we said earlier, shots fired in the Middle East, terror in Israel, followed by war in Gaza, followed by terrorist strikes on Iraq bases belonging to the United States. And as Jeremiah Jacques just informs me, Iran not only sailing a warship to the Red Sea, which we knew about, but then just yesterday or last night over in the Gulf of Oman, seizing a Greek owned oil tanker, not just, you know, through a terrorist proxy as it so often does, but actual Iranian troops uh, engaging in that type of provocation. So we've got quite a, a heated situation in the Middle East, in the places where world trade uh, passes through as well. And it just got even hotter last night. Mihail Zekic, you've got some of the details. For people that have been following this program for the past few weeks, they'll know about the situation in Yemen with the Houthis disrupting Red Sea trade, attacking commercial ships. The United States had formed a, a coalition of the willing to put a stop to that. They, along with some allied countries, participated in, in multiple strikes uh, throughout Yemen and uh, Houthi territory. The U.S. said that over 60 targets were hit at 60 locations and that over 100 precision-guided munitions were used, including Tomahawk missiles. The United Kingdom was the one country in the coalition to participate in attacks in two separate locations, including four Royal Air Force typhoons flying from a base in Cyprus uh, across the Middle East all the way to put an attack at the uh, OBS airfield. The capital city, or at least the military base next to the capital city, Sana'a, was also attacked by the U.S., the other countries that were involved included Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and Bahrain in the form of like co coordination, intelligence, sharing, that sort of thing. Or two guys in the case of the Netherlands, I think it was. <laughs> That's fair. Um, These 11 for Australia. There's some pretty pathetic contributions from some of these countries. That's fair, but there were a lot more countries that said they were going to participate and they didn't even help out with this. So coalition of the willing indeed. But either way, it's still a little bit early to tell what the repercussions in this uh, are going to be. The Houthis themselves say that there were 72 strikes, which suggests maybe the United States isn't sharing everything or at least the Houthis can't count straight. This is a bit of a game changer in the whole scenario. We don't know what the Houthis are going to respond. Are they going to escalate the situation them themselves? Are going to start attacking more ships? Are they going to back down? Are they going to wait and see what their uh, paymasters in Tehran tell them? A lot of unknowns in this, and by the time this episode goes to air, almost certainly the situation on the ground is going to be changed. But for now, this is what's happening. I just wanted to throw in a quick detail about uh, China in this situation. We know that China has been increasingly siding with Iran and its proxies, such as the Houthis. We know that China is 
increasingly on the side of destruction of the the U.S.-led global order. But China is also heavily dependent on oil imports from the Middle East. So the Chinese, they've really been feeling a little bit torn over all this. They love to see the Houthis attack American and even European ships, and they love to see a general failure in America's role in uh, trying to keep global shipping open. But they don't want their own shipments to be jeopardized and to be thwarted. So this week, China tried to kind of reconcile all of this by using the signals on their merchant vessels to transmit a message to the Houthi terrorists. The message says, all Chinese crew, all Chinese crew. So China's ships are basically saying, hey, Houthis, we're on your side. Don't fire on us. China has done this with five of their ships so far, and the strategy does seem to be working. And really, I think this is very sobering proof of just this disturbing alliance that China and Russia are building with Iran and its proxies and essentially anyone who hates America and is willing to work to try to destroy America. I think this isolation of America is a major, major part of this. Mahalo went into the coalition there. And there's no France, and there's not really any real German participation, Italy, Spain. A lot of these countries were asked to participate. I think it's the case of Italy and Spain. They directly said, if this were a European mission or even a NATO mission, then yes, we would participate, but we're not doing it under an American mission. Uh, And they were very direct about that. And you do have, there are French and there are Italian, like there are European warships in the area protecting ships, And France has shot down some drones and things like that. But all of these countries have refused to cooperate with the U.S.-led mission. They did this during the Iraq war. A lot of these countries didn't get involved. And that was massive news. This time, that's barely even remarkable. But I can't really think of a a more kind of low-level situation like this where America's asked for help and they've just been told, no, we've got troops in the area, but we're just not going to coordinate with you. So... You see Europe dealing with the situation in, in some ways, but they're not they're no longer willing to, in the Middle East, work under a U.S. umbrella. It's got to be their own umbrella. And I think that is when you think about what I was talking about in the first half, that's another pretty significant outcome of this. I think another outcome a bit on the flip side of all this is the moderate Arab support that's coming in for the United States. One of the few countries I mentioned that did uh, participate in this was Bahrain. And that was what the United States said. uh, News watchers were holding their breath to see if Bahrain themselves would admit that they participated. And they actually did. The Bahraini government said, yeah, we helped out with this. The fact that an Arab country would openly admit to being part of this coalition that in the broader uh, picture is siding against the enemies of Israel, the whole reason this started, um, or at least the opening excuse, is to side with Hamas against Israel, the fact that an Arab country would go out and say that is pretty remarkable. You go back a few months ago when the Houthis first announced they were going to war with Israel and they started firing missiles towards Israel. Saudi Arabia shot down a missile that was going towards Israel. They intervened directly on behalf of the Israelis. Bahrain is one of the countries that has diplomatic relations with Israel. It's a Sunni monarchy ruling over a Shiite population. They're terrified of Iran. They're probably the country, aside from Israel, with the biggest reason to be terrified of Iran. When the United States was forming this coalition, they also said there's a bunch of other Middle Eastern partners that we won't name because we don't want to cause too much of a shakeup. They don't want to be identified at this point. But the Arab world is looking at what Iran is doing with the Houthis, with Hamas, with all these other groups, and they're scared. They're scared to the point where they are willing to even publicly start siding with Israel at, by extension in this war. They see the threat that Iran is posing. They're taking off pretenses and they're getting ready for a major confrontation. Talking of going back to a, a bit of history, I think another important thing to remember is February 2021. And I think Mihailo alluded to this in, in the first half where Yemen came up a bit where Joe Biden got out and announced that he was solving the Yemeni civil war and the Houthis, and that he said America is not going to support Saudi Arabia in the Houthi civil war anymore. And he banned weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, at least for weapons that could be used in that conflict or would be used in that conflict. And he said, diplomacy is back. And now we've got to the point of view where America, after weeks of inaction, 
has been forced to not just back Saudi Arabia in Yemen, but directly bomb Yemen itself. It's an utter failure. Or is it? I guess we'll come back to that in a second of the Biden administration policy. I mean, there is that. Yeah, it looks like utter incompetence. You put it in contrast in context with everything else that they've done. And it is a lot more worrying than mere incompetence. That was just one of many policies that emboldened Iran and Iranian-backed proxy groups. So much of what they were, what Hamas was able to do on October 7th was there because America was, and, and Joe Biden was reversing things that Donald Trump did to restrict money and weapons going to the Palestinians in Gaza and going to Hamas and going in ways that could be used against Israel that he did to restrict Iran and Iran's proxy activities and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And this was a way of stepping in. You know, the Biden administration stepped in and enabled and helped Iran get a foothold in Yemen. And you know, what is happening in Yemen right now is massively because they actively helped the Houthis take over Yemen. And that was just one step among several. We kind of covered them every step of the way along the road. This is America's fault. They enabled this to happen. And it's part of this deliberate attempt by really Barack Obama, who's sitting behind the Biden administration or the Biden government to enable Iran and to help Iran spread and get control across the Middle East. And this is a result of that. And that's why you know, I'm pretty skeptical that actually this bombing of 16 sites did that much. It seems like that's probably the bare minimum that they were forced to do after enabling this for so long. I'm glad you mentioned that because at the time when it's in terms of speeches, policy statements, things like that, people on this program, you yourself, you know, warn this, this is going to end badly. You know, this is going to have consequences. And then when the bombs start going off and the enormous expenses are incurred as so many ships are going all the way around Africa to avoid Iran's threat there, you kind of forget that this does go back to speeches, policy decisions, those types of things that seem to have blown over, but they didn't blow over. They metastasized, as they say, they worsen, they exacerbated until you have major consequences. And then you look for a way out. You look for a way to you know, step back or solve the problem and you are in way too deep. And that happens not just one bomb at a time or one terrorist attack at a time, but one speech, one policy one change at a time. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Florey has been monitoring Barack Obama specifically, whom you mentioned, behind the Biden regime, and has identified him as the real force behind what we're seeing in, in the total realignment of American policy in the Middle East. That's all the time we have for the roundtable, and that's all the time we have for Trumpet Hour. We thank you for joining us. We thank our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zegich, and Richard Palmer. And we thank you for listening to Trumpet Hour. Appreciate you being with us every Friday. And we'll see you next week on Trumpet Hour.